So what's, what's your doctorate background? Um, in psychology. Uh, I have a PhD from Loyola University in Chicago, Illinois, and I've been uh, in clinical practice for the past 34 years. Um, but I've been focusing primarily on grief and bereavement, I'd say over the past 10 years or so. And I had some personal experiences with uh, deathbed visions, which led to me writing my book, We Do Not Die Alone. Um, and so that kind of put me off on that path. But I was always interested in the paranormal uh, near-death experiences, deathbed visions, and now more recently, terminal lucidity, um, after-death communications, all of those things, um, and past life regressions also. I've mm. done those uh, trainings. So you, you those. work in clinical psychotherapy, yeah. Yes. Well, that's I'm trying to retire now. Yeah, that's that's what I'm. I'm just getting started in that oh, really? as a um, oh. in CBT. Oh, okay. So that's quite interesting. I'm, my plan is to have a private practice in that, dealing with kind of looking at this spirituality as a kind of a base philosophy of, of therapy and uh-huh. growing it on that. Yes. So yeah. Well, good I, for you. I hope. Wish you a lot of luck. <laughs> Thanks. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, yeah. It's a, a challenge. Do you think that uh, your research you've done on these death-related experiences has changed how you feel about death? I do. I mean, as I say, I was always very... I always followed kind of the mainstream scientific view that once you die, that's it. Brain creates consciousness, no brain, no consciousness. And I couldn't Mm -hmm. see any reason why that wouldn't be the case. Um, until you start looking at these and the first time I heard about I think the first thing I heard about was the near-death experience because it was, it was uh-huh. quite common uh, and you think of course straight away well their brain's not working you know they're having hallucinations and of course you think like that but the difference with me is because I was I was that fear of death was there I always found those sort of experiences interesting so when you start looking into them deeply you start to see that it's not doesn't seem to be possible with hallucination or or um, drug-induced visions in all cases, in some certainly, but in all of them, it would seem a difficult thing to do. So that kind of thing got me into it more, and then you look at more phenomena, mm-hmm. and you start to have this big pool of evidence that seems to suggest that there is certainly something more to it than we can currently see. Yes. What yes. that is, we don't know, but yes. there is seems to be something more. Well, it's only been, I guess, since the 70s where Raymond Moody published his book, uh, life before life, and <clears throat> and people had a very hard time accepting that. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and even today, there are people who don't believe that those are real experiences. But um, there's so many books out there by people who've had the experience, and uh, it, that you know, it leaves little doubt that something definitely is going on. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people <clears throat> seem to that it's not doesn't seem so much that they refuse that the experience happens it's it's what the implications of that is that people disagree on mm-hmm. as to yes. whether it's yeah whether it's physically created yeah. or something more yes say so i lean on the something more but mm-hmm. and it may be where i live uh, in the deep south in louisiana but a lot of people are still afraid to talk about those experiences that they had because people will think that they're crazy mm-hmm. you know and so that's a shame <laughs> because it they is. can't share something that's so meaningful to them Mm, that's it and it's an experience that maybe can take an hour but has a a superb effect on the rest of their lives oh absolutely and 
it seems to be a memory that one of the few types of memory that is never kind of embellished mm -hmm. subconsciously mm -hmm. and is always the same yeah, over years true. and years. Um, so you've done a lot of research into near-death experience phenomena as well. Yeah, near-death experience, like I said, deathbed visions. Mm -hmm. I was particularly interested in that. After-death communication um, and, you know, I guess more recently the terminal lucidity or paradoxical lucidity as it's referred to today. Mm -hmm. We'll start, start with that because I think that's one of the stronger lines of evidence for a survival hypothesis because uh, um, terminal lucidity, because in those cases... In, um, especially in Alzheimer's where the brain is literally decaying mm -hmm. or at least it's in a, in a state where there should not be lucidity. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden it can be kind of within a week or a day or an hour of death, of the moment of death, suddenly it seems to be working hyper normally, if, yes. if not, you know, standard consciousness. And that seems in a brain that should be completely on the edge of death mm -hmm. to suddenly have a moment like that just before seems to be very counterintuitive to the materialistic <coughs> kind of idea um I, I spoke with you know dr gerald burley mm -hmm. i spoke with him about this and he he suggested that there is certainly some materialistic explanation to do with the hormones and and the various chemicals going on in the brain at the time of death uh, as an anesthesiologist I, I don't know what his our understanding is of, of these kind of brain conditions but um what's what's your opinion on that kind of idea well i think that you know everything is mediated by our brains um but this is such an amazing thing because the brains of people who have alzheimer's who have uh, brain tumors who have other degenerative diseases of the brain can all have this experience so it kind of suggests that there's not just one pathway that's creating it. Um, I don't know enough about neurophysiology to say what that, I think that might be, but it's very intriguing how someone whose brain, they haven't spoken in years and uh, don't recognize anybody, and then all of a sudden they'll perk up and they'll ask for uh, a latte, they'll talk about all kinds of stuff, ask how family members are, this, that, and the other. And then, you know, the problem is that families get excited that there's been a miracle. Mm, and then they're they recovering. Yeah. Yeah, they're, they're recovering and, and then they die. But it's just, it's absolutely fascinating to me. And there's some recent research, I guess, in the past couple of years with the National Institute for Aging that did on the study, uh, looked at Alzheimer's and paradoxical lucidity, um, trying to find some answer to to the Alzheimer's question, is it possible that there is some mechanism that can be used to help um, return some uh, clarity to these people's thoughts and, and, and voice? It would be wonderful if they could. It would. With terminal lucidity, there's the, the main kind of idea amongst those who are more spiritually orientated or more akin to the paranormal explanation is that um, it seems to be that consciousness is in the process of leaving the damaged brain and, and can become more clear as a result and more pure, if you like. Mm -hmm. um, what, what do you think about that kind of explanation? Well, until I have more information about the, the brain and how that's working, I believe it's a spiritual experience. You can uh, link that with all these other experiences that we talked about. Uh, it's just, it's amazing. It is like a miracle, even if it's just for five minutes, you know, that somebody's brain who is so 
is so messed up, you know, can, uh, can do those things is just amazing. And with uh, terminal lucidity is connected with deathbed visions because many times it's at the end when someone has been uncommunicative and unresponsive that they'll sit up and say, oh, look, there's my husband. He's come to get me and then die <laughs> immediately. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. those things are all kind of intertwined. And a lot of the experiences are very similar uh, in terms of near-death experience, deathbed visions, all of these things. So how do you explain that? You know, it's a, whether it's a spiritual thing or a materialistic thing, the fact that people can have these experiences and it so dramatically changes their lives uh, and the lives of those around them is just amazing. It is. I think the only problem that I can find with, with that and with folks that say that these experiences are, it doesn't matter if we can explain them materially, materialistically, the mm -hmm. the experience is still valid and still very life changing and to me yeah that, that's that's fine but if we can take them all the way down and show that it is just this illusion created by material brain and to me that seems to incredibly devalue the experience because it's yeah. just a comforting hallucination it yeah. has no real meaning okay. and although it gives us comfort it ultimately doesn't mean yeah. anything and that seems a shame yeah and and these things are not like real hallucinations uh hallucinations tend to be more frightening and these all of these experiences are very comforting uh and soothing for people so that's there's a big difference in that you know most people i guess if they see somebody coming to them who's been dead for a long time might be frightened of that but mm, mm. <laughs> not certainly not these if people if my granddad came back and stood at the side of my bed, I'd be terrified. <laughs> and I believe everybody would be. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> particularly if you're yeah. not dying, if you're not exactly. in that state. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So um, deathbed visions, there's something I'm always extra careful about because the problem with this sort of phenomena at the end of life is you've always got to take into account what kind of drugs are being used for sedation or what the state of the brain is um but the ones that interest me are those that include veridical aspects mm -hmm. yes absolutely so yeah people have the ones that interest me are the people that see deceased people who they weren't aware was deceased at the mm -hmm. time and they'd only died maybe an hour or a day yes. before um do you do you know of any accounts such as that oh yes uh, very much so um where veridical uh, for people who don't know is that it can be replicated or somebody has uh, has seen it. And so yeah. you have another uh, voice adding to mm -hmm. that. Uh, but yes, there are early on, and I can't remember who the researcher was. Uh, one of the things they looked at in particular were those experiences that were veridical so that they could say here, this was, this happened and this person was aware of it and can uh, attest to it. And so that gives it a little bit more power. But, um, you know, the people who have these deathbed visions are, um, you know, they, they can be seeing uh, deceased relatives. And all of the figures that people see in a deathbed vision are deceased. They don't see live people. They, they see someone who's deceased. And the other thing is, is that, when you see a, have a deathbed vision, 
you're not in a state of confusion. They're very, people are very clear. Uh, they know that they're here and they know that they're somewhere else and that there's somebody here who's coming to get them. So that's very different than being delusional. Um, there was an account uh, I remember about this woman who uh, the nurse was in her room and she was, you know, picking at the air and stuff. And the nurse asked what she was doing. And she said, well, I'm, I'm looking at all the butterflies around me. And um, the, the nurse said, well, I don't see them. And then she said, well, of course you don't, dear. You're not dying. When you die, you'll see them. Now, you know, that's not somebody who's out of their head. That's no. somebody who knows no. what's going on. So that's mm. that's the thing about uh, deathbed visions is that they are very different than hallucinations. Mm. Mm. So how, how would we compare, say, a deathbed vision in terms of its properties to, say, a morphine-induced hallucination? Well, I think that, again... It's the clarity of the experience. If it's morphine induced, you might not be too clear about what's going on. Um, you know, I, I think that has something to do with it. That, and see, a lot of times when at the end of life, when people are so drugged that they don't have these experiences because they're zonked out, you know, that they um, aren't able to because they're sedated. Mm-hmm. So yes, it, it certainly comes back to the the hyper realistic kind of lucidity of, of the of the experience, um, and it does certainly seem incredible that if one was to claim that these are drug induced or dying brain induced hallucinations, that they are incredibly consistent ones. Mm-hmm. As you say, it always seems to be deceased relatives. You'd have thought a random hallucination caused by whatever physical means would be. You know the typical Dumbo, pink elephants, or even you could you could argue for butterflies, um, but living and deceased people, people with three heads, you'd thought it'd be completely sporadic, mm-hmm. and certainly, as you say, not extremely lucid, and yes. certainly I wouldn't have thought to the extent where you can communicate around you with yes. calm and mm-hmm. yeah and agitation. Yeah, so there's a big difference in that. Um, the recent study that came out, um, I think I have it here somewhere, because uh, Dr. Bethany, um, who is in Austria, he was one of the um, ones who did some of the initial work with NAM and AHM about um, uh, paradoxical lucidity. And they did some research um, about, it's hard to do research on paradoxical lucidity because, you know, somebody who can't give consent on their own, who's in a comatose state or, you know, who wants to be hooked up at the end of life to an EEG or, you know, so there are problems with that. So a lot of it is um, information from nurses or family members. Yeah, retrospective. Yeah, retrospective. So they they did find uh, some uh, difference in terms of people who had Alzheimer's that there was, I've forgotten the statistics on it now, and I don't remember where I put my paper, Um, anyway, uh, about that there were changes that were noted in the brains of these patients uh, at the end of life. So they're hopeful they can continue on and and find some other things that would be helpful. 
mm. have so other question, people. Yeah. So the question is there then, does the brain suddenly retain its its ability to work lucidly or does that seem to indicate some kind of a separation or a, a an interaction between the spirit or yeah. the consciousness well, uh, and it, it certainly needs further study absolutely definitely. and then if somebody's brain <clears> is <throat> as they've described it just completely destroyed how could it how could it do mm. that <laughs> uh, yeah unless you have sudden regeneration of, of the brain tissue it seems <laughs> no you wouldn't have thought so no one of the um explanations i've had which seems reasonable in 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 some cases especially in the case of tumors is that maybe when the brain dies the mass of the tumor or whatever growth it be um slowly disintegrates and allows more semi-normal function to continue as that growth decays which may explain towards the end of the illness but for Alzheimer's and degenerative conditions like that, which are purely breaking down of the neurons, mm-hmm. you'd have to allow for some sort of regeneration phenomena, which by itself would be a miracle. Yes, that's, that's true. It would be yeah. a huge miracle if mm. that were to happen. Yeah. So it's um, there, there were stories. I mean, I think it goes back 250 years that people began to talk about uh, terminal lucidity, although it wasn't named until a few years ago, or paradoxical lucidity. And one of the examples they used is this woman who was born with severe birth defects. You may be aware of it, cognitive and physical, and lived her entire life in uh, an asylum, never talking, uh, had no social skills um, in terms of uh, toileting and all those things. But as she was dying, all of a sudden she... Uh, the nurses heard somebody singing. And so this woman had started singing, singing uh, songs of the dying, you know, like in in a funeral where you would have certain songs. She'd never spoken a word in her life. Now, Mm. how do you explain that? (laughs) I mean, Mm. it's uh, things are just these little miracles. And Mm. it's it's little tales like that that suggest that there must be something other than just the brain, because if her brain was unable to yeah. even muster speech, we don't know if she was able to learn speech and just not dictate, but certainly that would entail that her brain repaired itself to a certain level where she was able to then speak. But to me, that seems <laughs> unlikely, Yeah, especially if it's the, her whole life. Yes, yes, <laughs> that mm. does seem unlikely. But, Unfortunately, things like that, you, you, people can quite reasonably pass off as anecdotes and not oh, yeah. of any evidential value because it's it's just the way it is, unfortunately. But certainly they're, they're worth taking into consideration. Absolutely. I mean, there are examples of the phenomenon. It's about it needs to be researched more in whatever way instead of just passed off as, you know, silliness. I think the issue, as you say is probably twofold one the morality aspect of it and two is getting funding for this because there's no monetary value to it really yeah as opposed to pharmaceuticals and and different areas of science that can generate but if um, the national institute of aging is is willing to look at it then that's good they can fund mm, some mm, research it's a start yeah yeah certainly needs to be a, a shift in the kind of dogma or the the paradigm yeah. there is because it's not explaining everything well, and, you know, um, people don't like to talk about death or deal with death in the first place. And then mm. if you add to it 
these phenomena, it's like, well, no, I don't want to go there at all. Mm. You know, that freaks me out too much. Mm -hmm. And it's a shame because death is the only certain thing we're all to experience. Right. And That's in right. my opinion, I, I want to know where I'm going. I want to know exactly what I can expect, mm -hmm. which, um, which is a shame at 24, but there we are. Yeah. Well, and most people want to know that. <laughs> where, where are they going and what to expect? And mm. It's just a shame that general society has tabooed it to such an, such an extent. Absolutely. I mean, you know, in the 18th, 19th century, even it was a part of everyday life. You know, your yes. next door neighbor yeah. would die at 30. Your mother would die when she was 25. Yeah. And you, you'd, you'd live with it. And it was it yeah. was just the way it was. And but now it's become... In, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just say now it's become such a taboo that people aren't even allowed to die naturally and properly anymore you know right. and it's not a part of our community anymore unfortunately yeah. i had done a, a article for psychology today on queen victoria and death now, they knew how to do it back then <laughs> the victorian yeah. age it was all about death and dying and all the things that went with that and we've certainly come a, a long way from that we have and i think a lot of the eastern eastern traditions have got it a lot closer to what we'd call the right way mm -hmm. in the fact that they honor people that have died yes. in a certain way and do all these rituals whether that has any mm -hmm. meaning or just showing respect yes. but it's it's accepted that mm -hmm. dying is a natural part of life there's no stopping it you can delay it but at the end of the day is that really the best thing if it means quality of life goes down yeah but, do you have death cafes in england uh, i've never I, heard of one. Oh, you never heard well i thought that the woman who developed that uh, began over in England and brought it to America. And what it is, is people getting together um, to talk about death, talk about their questions about, it's like a, a large group and they serve um, cake and tea. That's why mm -hmm. I came that, from England. That sounds English, yeah. Yes, it does. Mm. Uh, and uh, I've been to several of them and, and led several of them. And it's very interesting because people don't have a forum to ask questions. They, there are a lot of uh, myths and misconceptions about death as well as mm. grief. And mm. so the Death Cafe um, is a way of allowing people to talk about it in an environment where other people aren't going to mm. put them down in some and way. I think it's, um, as probably both of us being psychologists in, in mind, can see that that is a very strong benefit generally mm -hmm. um, as a way of, of um, catharsis or anti-suppression and things like that. You know, being able to talk about these things is the, one of the core tenets of CBT especially. Mm -hmm. And having a medium such as that to to talk about this sort of thing will do a lot of good. Absolutely. And will probably save a lot of um, mental anguish, especially in the older who are facing that kind of time. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. mm. um, so in, in our culture, in the West, generally Christianity is, is the ruling religion. Do you find many near-death experiences or uh, not near -death, um, deathbed visions or other such visions which involve kind of the standard idea of heaven and hell? Yes. Yes. It doesn't necessarily have to be with um, someone is go usually going to a better place, wherever they call it, whether it's heaven or hell. Although there's some experiences, near-death experiences, that people have had very negative, distressing experiences with that. But um, 
for example, there was a, a study done, Haraldson and Osin, Osis, O-S-S-I-S, um, in uh, India. And the population that they looked in, looked at, experienced, uh, compared to uh, those in America, had more distressing experiences. And that um, they attribute it to what they call yamduts. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing yeah. that. Yeah, <laughs> and that, you know, the uh, kind of the angel of death, although it's not mm, an angel mm. that comes to get them. So there's a lot of fear around that. Yeah. Um, and so it does, it, it occurs in other uh, religions as well. Mm -hmm. how, how common does it seem that the r religious individuals who are dying see scenes or individuals from their specific religion so christians seeing jesus uh, hindu seeing um get myself in trouble if i don't know the reason but seeing their deities and islam seeing their deities mm -hmm. does it seem culturally um there, dictated? Yes. yeah it seems to be um and a lot of people in louisiana the majority of the population is catholic so um it's not unusual for people to see Jesus or Mary or some Christian or Catholic figure. Um, Jews and uh, Muslims sometimes will see angels. Doesn't have to be a specific thing, but you would think if the idea is to comfort somebody, you're not gonna send you know, Attila the Hun or no, Hitler after no, you no. to come get you to take you to the other side. And I think that uh, it is about um, comfort and mm -hmm. easing the mm -hmm. fear of dying that you're going to be with somebody mm -hmm. who yeah so to me that raises three possibilities mm -hmm. um, one of course we have to consider that it's culturally defined hallucination I don't believe it but that, we've got okay. to consider it <laughs> yeah. um, two is that as you say um, someone is sent in that form as a mm -hmm. way of comforting their passing over or three, that somehow the minds of the individuals are putting that image onto some other kind of, um, kind of non-partisan entity, maybe just a spiritual entity, but their minds are putting on what they expect to see, so Jesus or whoever would be comforting for them. That's the three possibilities I can see. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, sometimes uh, there is an account in my book uh, about a woman uh, who was Jewish and saw Jesus coming to get her. I, you know, <laughs> so I don't know anything about that woman. Um, but I think, yeah, a lot of it is culturally related. Um, for example, what we were talking about before the Yamduts, uh, that they saw... Um, they were frightened because of the figure of death that was coming to get them. Um, whereas here, there weren't any, rep at least in my research, there wasn't any representation of the Grim Reaper or uh, things like that. Um, so, you know, the, obviously culture is involved in it. So, yes, it's just to what extent and how that's manifest. Mm -hmm. yeah. As we say, whether that is portrayed by the person themselves or whether something is is putting that on for the benefit of them yeah um so what are atheist experiences who expect nothing usually i mean atheism doesn't necessarily 
mean no afterlife belief but generally speaking yes um those that expect annihilation do mm-hmm. we see visions and similar things with with atheists yes yes they can um what's the general they may way? only see uh family members as opposed to religious figures i mean not everybody sees religious figures and sometimes your pet will come back and get you you know so <laughs> it's a whole range of uh people and things that will come back to help you cross over. And that's the point of the vision. And they say that I've helped to, I'm here to help take you home to help you leave. Yeah. Children will also see things. Um, They will see, I know there was one account of, young child seeing an angel, but the angel didn't have wings. And so if it was somehow culturally related, if they'd seen pictures of angels, they might've seen it with wings, but they didn't. And uh, there was another account of a child, must've been a near-death experience, I'm trying to remember, um, who saw something in his experience he recovered, went home. They were going through a picture album and he said, oh, look, <laughs> there's the man that was with me when I was gone. Or It was his great grandfather. Who I assume did, died before he was born. Yeah, yeah. I had no mm. idea who that was, but mm. he so was I, there and helped. Identified him purely from what he saw in his vision. Yes. See, yeah. that, that's an example of a veridical yeah. perception, uh-huh. which seems very yeah. difficult to explain away. Yes. All you can really say is that it was a story made up by the parents for monetary gain or fame or whatever, but that's very much stretching. (laughs) Yes, there are cynics around. (laughs) I remember um, talking to Chris, I think it's Bats or Betts, but Chris Bats, who was a near-death experiencer as a result of suicide. Mm. And he saw angels, um, all male, I believe. They had the wings, but Mm -hmm. one entity that he saw, which he believed to be an angel was uh, in the form of a beetle with wings and I thought that's unusual you, need, you don't really hear much about that and um, on looking up the picture of, of, of the beetle that he kind of explained um, I was able to find that there was some kind of a beetle entity or a, a god or a messenger of some kind in an ancient I think it was Egyptian hmm. mythology oh yeah that the scarab to- yeah, that mm-hmm. comes to collect you at death or something yeah. similar. I can't remember, but it's interesting to see that sort of thing as well yes. because a, a beetle is not something you'd associate with angels and dying. <laughs> that's, that's true. You certainly mm. don't. Mm. Yeah, but that, that is interesting. It is. The whole thing, the subject is fascinating because we don't know what answers and it provides a mystery for life. And the modern studies of um, quantum physics and things like that are beginning to give us a deeper insight into how everything is seems to be a, a structure of energy and, and intention mm-hmm. even, almost, if the um, Copenhagen um, interpretation of quantum mechanics is correct, which means that consciousness basically brings everything into, into form, so to speak, in a very, very simple way. So it seems to be that there is definitely some kind of ontological importance of our consciousness at the base of everything, mm-hmm. which again would then tie into the our expectations on these visions as to what we see for our own benefit. 
Mm-hmm. What's what's your opinion on on the idea of God as a separate entity? Well, I believe in God, mm-hmm. um, so you know I I don't know whether he she is a separate entity or just part of everything. Mm. Um, but I very strongly do believe mm. in a God. Do you follow a religion? Yes, I'm Jewish. Jewish. Mm-hmm. I'm not familiar with the Jewish traditions. I'm not religious in any way. I, okay. I, I was forced into a Christian school as a, as, a, as a kid, and it really put me off. Oh, <laughs> but, yeah. <clears throat> so, so what is is the Jewish generalized idea of um, of God and, and heaven, hell? And do you follow it kind of in an orthodox fashion? No, definitely not orthodox. My my grandparents were orthodox. I was raised conservative, and I'm now very reform. I consider myself more spiritual, as people will say. Uh, incorporate a, a, a number of different views, um, and so what I believe may be different than somebody who is an orthodox or conservative Jew. Um, Jews believe supposedly don't believe in an afterlife, which I do. Um, you're, you do good deeds on earth and that's why you're here. It's nothing about going on to another life or anything like that. Although what's interesting is in the Kabbalah, there is, um, reference to reincarnation. So, you know, what was going on back in the day, so to speak, uh, didn't carry over into today. So I, and I don't know what else was back there that people believed in um, that may be very consistent with some of the things we believe in today. So what, which line of evidence in your research do you find the most convincing of um, an afterlife or some form of continued consciousness? Well, I think that mm, <laughs> most all of it. Um, I was trying thing. to I was trying to narrow that down. It's like, well, no, then there's this and there's that. Um, but I think that the deathbed visions and after death communications are um, really significant. I mean, like I said, certainly near death experiences and uh, paradoxical lucidity also, but. Um, for example, uh, my mom died, it's been uh, 20 years ago. <clears throat> and after she died, um, I started to find these little bitty white feathers everywhere. They were in my office and they were <laughs> outside in the hall and by the trees. And it was like, I don't know where that came from. I mean, it wasn't. And then at one point it occurred to me that that was probably my mother trying to get in touch with me uh, to let me know that she's still there. Of course, I was talking to her and all these other things. Uh, and so that, that went on for a, quite a while and it was very helpful to me. Uh, it was very comforting to know that she was there watching over me. And so then it kind of stopped for a bit. My book had come out and so I had to go and do some Uh, public relations stuff, and I went to Mississippi, (laughs) where I had to do a radio show. That was my first one a long time ago. So we went to a restaurant to eat, and I must say that I was quite anxious, having Mm -hmm. never done that before. Of course. Um, And uh, so when we got ready to leave, 
the bathroom was outside. You had to go outside the restaurant to go to the restroom. So I turned the corner to go to the restroom and there was this sidewalk with not a thing on it, but one little white feather. Man, I ran to that feather and I grabbed that thing <laughs> up and I wasn't nervous anymore. I mean, you know, you could say that's a coincidence, but <laughs> that meant the world to me. I don't know where it came from because there weren't even any trees around there. So it's things like that. I, I guess the other thing I, I can share with you that was uh, very convincing was before my mother died, she, uh, this is quite a while before, she would take me in her closet and said, okay, this is the dress that I want to be buried in. Of course, okay. You know, I didn't want to hear it then. I didn't want to think about her dying. So but when the time came, I couldn't remember which one it was. So there was a blue one and there was this kind of peach colored one. So I liked the peach colored one. And so we buried her in that. I knew a woman who was psychic. So I said, well, why, let me just give her a call, see if she can check in with my mother and see how she's doing. And so she did her thing and she said, your mother's really laughing. And um, I said, well, why is she laughing? And because the psychic was laughing also. She said, your mother wants to know where what happened to the blue dress. <laughs> mm. And nobody else knew about that except no. the two of us. No. So, I mean, you know what? <laughs> that was just more confirmation that yeah, her consciousness was. continues to live. And I think that Many people have these experiences, although they're not aware of what they are and they don't want to tell anybody because it sounds like they're crazy. But um, so, I mean, there's evidence all around. Mm. Uh, my mum recently, um, funny enough, on this the last holiday or vacation we went on um, a few days ago was talking about it. And it seems unusual because she's 51 or 52 and certainly nowhere near that level yet. But because our, our dog's on his way he's mm. 13 and he's got kidney failure and he's struggling oh, poor baby and yeah he's, he was my first it's going to break our hearts when he goes yeah and because of that it was on mum's mind and she was telling me that she wants to be um cremated and have her ashes mixed with with ties our little dogs and the second little dog when he goes mm -hmm. and spread across dorset beach and it's, it's nice in a way for her to be able to talk about that kind of thing but what did she, to you? It, it it doesn't bother me. It really doesn't. Okay. Because I suppose having done this research for neon twelve years, you kind of get accustomed to talking about it. Mm -hmm. And I, when when mum goes, I don't know what I'm going to do because I was always I'm an only child, and, and uh, she was always my mum and my best friend. Yeah. You know, very immature when she wanted to be at the right times. Very playful and and very loving. Would do anything for me. And equally, I'd do anything for her. So when she goes, yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. It'll be hard. But it will be very hard. But as I say, you know, doing this kind of thing, you become accustomed to talking about it. And I think it gives us a great advantage because we understand that maybe we will meet again eventually. Mm -hmm. And it's nice to hear that people see their pets because, I, you know, in heaven without Ty and Omi, I wouldn't really want to be there. Yeah. It wouldn't be heaven if it, it wasn't. Wouldn't, no, oh, no. yeah. I've had people not only talk about their dogs, but horses mm -hmm. <laughs> coming back. And so, uh, yeah, mm. there are animals up there, too. 
So do you believe in that the animals, every animal has what one would call a soul or, or some kind of continuing entity? Or do you think it's only those that we have emotional connections with or that have the ability to... You know, I don't know. Mm. I'm not it's sure It's a difficult about that. thing because then you have to wonder, does every ant or every flea... Yeah. And then you get questions, does it go down to viruses and bacteria? And it gets difficult, but um, certainly, as you say, there is evidence that at least those that we love yes are, are there yes mm. well i hope covid doesn't go there in terms of a virus <laughs> we'll be all right we don't have any lungs or anything for it to <laughs> oh, that's right we'll be okay <laughs> a spiritual covid that wouldn't be very nice <laughs> but um I'll, I'll tell you actually a tale i had recently say recently in 2014 my nan died she was 80 something she died of colon cancer mm. um and I used to work in a a warehouse where we made um, foam inserts for printers and things like that. When you put a printer in a box and have foam around it mm -hmm. cut. Mm -hmm. And I used to cut the inserts. And um, there was a butterfly. I think it was a, the day I went back to work after my nan's death. I think it was two or three days after she died. And there's often been butterflies in there, but this particular one came down and, and sat on the workbench where I was. And you can imagine we had a, a saw and a, a router, which is a mm -hmm. big drill. And a, it was a noisy place, not somewhere a butterfly would want to be. But he came down, he flew, and he sat on my bench and didn't move. And a colleague of mine came out and I said, I call him Bob, look at this butterfly. And he, he came out and he poked at it. And it, it flopped over. <laughs> he said, that, he said that's, that's in dead, that is, he said. And sort of whooshed it away and I thought oh that's a shame uh, I kept going with my foam for about 10 minutes and um, went back and looked at the butterfly and he got up and flew away <laughs> and I thought that's interesting that's never happened before and, and just after Nan's, Nan's death mm -hmm. and as well you know you were saying at the funeral there was abundance of, of white feathers didn't think much of that because that was a place where a lot of pigeons were <laughs> so unfortunately I've never really had any white feather on, a, on an empty sidewalk kind of situation, but the butterfly. Well, was that very butterfly is uh, <laughs> sounds to me butterflies are frequently seen in after death communication. Actually, my daughter was in California when my mom died, and about the time that she died, there was a butterfly that came and perched on her hand, and she knew that that was that was who that was. So, you know, some people will say that we're crazy, but. I don't believe that. Well, it might be crazy, but these crazy things still happened. That's right. That's we right. can't explain them. So you, you've been to mediums before? Oh, absolutely. And psychics. What's what's your thoughts of them? Because most people will say cold readers and um, fraudsters. Yeah. Well, which, some of people, course the, yeah, some people yeah. are cold yeah, readers. Indeed. But who's going to say what happened to your blue dress? I mean, mm, <laughs> you that's know, right. what happened that's to right. the blue dress? And it's somebody that I'd been to before that I'd known. So that I, I trusted her. Yeah. Um, and I usually will only go see somebody if somebody I know has seen them and recommended them. But there are plenty of shysters out there who are just of trying course. to get money. But I do believe there's some people with a gift mm, and mm. they communicate I'm always, with the other side. Mm, I'm always extra skeptical when it comes to those that do it for television audiences oh. <laughs> and, and things like that. Yeah. I mean, do you remember um, Sylvia Brown? Oh, yeah. Yeah, is she still alive? No, she she died. She but okay. um, she was very good, but notoriously got a few things wrong that were pretty disastrous to her career. 
And on looking on looking later on, she would charge things like eight hundred and fifty dollars for a half an hour telephone reading, and that to me was that's disgusting. That, that's about it. That, yep. that tells you everything you need to know. Yep. And it's similar, I'm sure, for a lot of these online uh, television personalities. Mm-hmm. So I'd say you always got to be very careful. If if someone's um, the best people to find someone that aren't going to charge you and just do it because they feel it's the right thing to do, or of course you need to make money if it's yeah. their main. Or charge you, you some minimal fee. That. But, yeah. you know, five hundred, yeah. eight hundred dollars is ridiculous. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody's so worth that. <laughs> no. So, do you think these mediums are indeed getting in touch with um, discarnate entities, or because the, the ones other... who really are doing it? I do believe mm-hmm. that. Because the other argument is that maybe it's some kind of psi connection, telepathic between the sitter and the reader. Well, way, I mean, you, still you do you do read from the person. Um, but the information is coming from somewhere else, mm. I believe. Mm. Do you know of any um, scientific studies, research that's been done on this? I know of um, the Julie Byshell Winbridge Institute research. Um, yes, I do. It's a matter of my thinking of who did it, because he did a number of... Um... Gary Schwartz? Yes, thank you. That's mm. who that was. Did you read his book? I haven't. No. Okay, yeah. He did... Um, I have it somewhere after 34 years in practice i have books all over i don't even know where things are but uh yeah he did some really good research is he working on the soul phone currently is that gary schwartz yeah gary schwartz. i don't know what his more recent stuff is no. that he's doing hmm. i think he's involved with a soul phone which is um a, a piece of equipment that apparently technology that can reach the other side yeah in th- through a telephone kind of system not sure how that would work but i'm not either. be fascinating yeah mm. well, a lot of interesting things out there to to look at certainly as long as people are open to it yes is there anything you wanted to you wanted to show uh, books websites uh oh i write a blog for psychology today um and it's psychologytoday.com forward slash blog uh forward slash us forward slash dot com understanding dash grief how about all that or you can just google my name in psychology today and that will take you to my articles so i do a blog is on different aspects of grief 